The Wise Words podcast is recorded virtually from Ottawa. We acknowledge that the land on which we gather is the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. The Algonquin people have lived on this land since time immemorial. We are grateful to have the opportunity to be present in this territory. Welcome back to the Wise Words Podcast. I'm Tareen. Who else is here? I'm Maya. And today we have with us the amazing Dr. Adrian Chan. So he's going to talk about his experience and all the work he's been doing and um, his experience as an ally. So let's just jump right into it. I remember when we were talking last week, you mentioned you had a very interesting approach to your academic choices and how your career developed. So would you like to get into that today? Sure, I would love to. So thanks uh, first for um, allowing me to join you here uh, in this conversation. Um, yeah, last week I was, I was talking just about my kind of journey. Um, and I think it resonates a lot with students who often face um, sometimes some uncertainties, right? Where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do in the future and planning how things are going to happen. And um, oftentimes when we think about the future, there's a lot of uncertainty. We, we certainly feel that now with the pandemic that's going on. And um, that type of uncertainty, I think, can, can lead us uh, into kind of indecision and sometimes uh, anxiety, I guess. And I was just kind of reflecting upon my own journey. And I have this kind of fortunate kind of behavior that I'm a bit lazy on, on certain things. So, you know, I put enough effort to try to make a good decision, but don't um, put a lot of effort thinking that I can make what I call an optimal decision, right? And I think that's where people get stuck, where they think, you know, I got to make the right decision, the best decision, as if there's only like one right decision on things, right? And life right. isn't kind of like that, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, where to go to school, which program to go into, which job I should go to, which city I'm going to live in, you know, there's many right answers to that, I think, right? And yeah. Um, I think life is just so nonlinear that it's impossible uh, to predict how things are going to turn out. And so for me, you know, I, I made decisions based on kind of recommendations that people gave me, um, things that I, I thought I would do well in, things that I knew that I would like, but never kind of fooled myself thinking that this is the best decision out there, right? You, you can't yeah. figure what the best decision is. Unless you try it all and then look back and say, oh, yeah, that was <laughs> all the things I've tried. That was the best one. Well, you say you're lazy, but I did mention last week, you're more flexible and open to taking other people's advice and acting upon that advice, which yeah. I think is really important. It's a good form of laziness is the way I would, I would look at it, right? I think, <laughs> uh, um, you know, where you, you basically put enough effort to, to, to get something that's a good, again, a good decision, right? And then... You know, don't go beyond that. I think I think last time we talked, I made that analogy to like dining out in a restaurant that you've never been to before, where yeah. when you make a decision to what to eat, you know, you you want to put some effort in it. But you're mm -hmm. avoiding things that you do not like. I always tell people I don't I hate olives. I just detest them. And so if you see something with olives, I'm like I'm not doing that. And then you know you end up with a few choices that you're like maybe I'll have chicken or the fish or something like that, and then. You make a decision and you 
then you just carry forward, have a good dinner kind of stuff, right? And so yeah. um, I kind of approach what people think are the big decisions in my life in a very similar manner, like, you know, what career to go into. It's, you know, I'm making, I'm not making uh, arbitrary decisions, but I'm putting enough effort to, to ensure that I'm making, I think, what I think are good decisions. Yeah. And um, so how did you make the switch? Because um, most of your industry experience was in undergrad, right? Through co-ops. Yeah. And then you somehow switched into research somehow along the way. How did that happen? Um, I think one of the things that you that um, that you get um, through life is experience. Okay, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying before. You know, you you want to make choices that you that you like and and avoid things that you dislike. And life kind of experiences teaches you things that you that you don't like. Right? I wouldn't have known that olives are disgusting until I've eaten it all. <laughs> That's an example, right? <laughs> and so I think through the experiences I've had uh, in industry um, allowed me to see that, right? I, I worked at really large companies and really small companies and uh, worked on more software-oriented things, more hardware-oriented things. And um, I think for myself, one, one of the things I discovered was um, I like the first 50% of a problem, right? I, you know, I love when things are really like kind of unknown and, and you're really kind of just making sense of that problem. And then once, mm-hmm. you know, you get to a point where you're like, all right, I think I know how to solve this. I just have to do the details. Um, I get kind of a, a bit detached from it. You know, it's less interesting for me. And so as it turns out, research is, is more attuned to my kind of uh, the way I kind of work. You know, you are working on the first 50 percent of a problem. <laughs> and once it's kind of solved, yeah. then you translate that into, into um, commercialization, I guess. So it, it suits me very well in that sense. I can totally relate to that because I feel like I am prone to boredom. <laughs> so I always jump from project to project because I like the initial rush of working on a project. And then once I figured it out, I don't like applying it. That somebody else can do that. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I got uh, I I got a bit panicked. I think uh, I went uh, I went through co-op at the University of Waterloo, right? And there, it's a four month on, four month off. So you do four months of uh, schooling, and then you do four months of co-op, and back four months of schooling, back four months of co-op. And I just remember that where you know after two or three months, I was like, oh, you know, if I was in school, I'm like, I can't wait to finish this and, and go work. And then after two or three months of work, I was like, oh, I can't wait to finish this and go back to school. <laughs> and I was like, I'm never going to be able to hold a job. <laughs> I can't last more than two or three months. And, but as it turns out, working at a university is perfect for me because every four months things change as well. <laughs> so it kind of works out really nicely in that sense. Yeah, everything's definitely most exciting in the beginning. I'm finding that with working on my honors project because it's a whole year. It's like, oh, it's not going to be done at the end of December. Like everything else is going to be four whole more months. <laughs> Trying to keep up that energy. So um, where did you start with your research and what are you working on now? Uh, like when you talk about where did I start with my research, are you talking about like when my first exposure was it to it or? Let's just try to do like a whole history. <laughs> the whole history. All the way up to um, now. Yeah. Okay. Just give us I some mean, highlights. I mean, I, th- I think uh, we're kind of born with some type of level of curiosity, right? I've always had a kind of a curious mind uh, throughout my life. And I think that's partly why I kind of went to engineering. It, it's kind of stereotypical, but I was one of those kids where, you know, you're trying to figure out how, you know, your toys work and stuff like that. 
a bit different in that I have, um, I'm the fifth of six children. And so I have my, my oldest brother is 11 years older than me. So I ended up with a lot of hand-me-down toys. So it wasn't that I took apart my toys and put them back together. It was that I got the toys and they were already broken. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time trying to you know, understand how they work so I could fix them and then play with them. Um, and so there was always kind of this built-in kind of curiosity with uh, that I always had with things. And one of my last co-op terms, uh, I actually had the fortune of working at uh, the Institute of Biomedical Engineering at the University of New Brunswick and um, did a co-op term there that was very research-based. And so I really got into, um, in my undergrad, really experience and engage in, in, in research from that perspective. And that was a wonderful experience. Um, fortunate to have uh, a good supervisor. And it ended up really successful, and I got like a, a journal um, publication out of it. And so, wow. um, yeah, that positive experience um, got me to go to do my master's at the University of Toronto. I went back to UNB to do my PhD, and then came uh, to Carleton uh, in 2003 to start uh, my, my current job as a professor in the Department of Systems and Computer Engineering. And um, I guess my research interests kind of have been evolving over time and right now I'm, I'm focused on two main areas one is on biomedical signal processing um, and this is kind of arriving from uh, where the way that technology has evolved where we can collect uh, a whole bunch of biomedical data now like there's a lot of these wearable devices where you can get your ecg and eeg and all these other types of signals uh, and very easily and, and low cost but the the signals are often uh, noisy right? Because you're, you're walking around where you're collecting your ECG. I'm not collecting it in a highly controlled laboratory environment. I'm doing it in my own home or while I'm jogging and things like that. And so the noise there can cause misinterpretations where it's either like false alarms or you make decisions that are just incorrect based on the data. And so my interest there is how to look at this, what I call biomedical signal quality analysis, which parts of the signals are good and I should analyze it, and which parts of the signals are bad and I should kind of ignore it. Uh, and so we've been looking at that from everything from um, diagnostics to um, um, uh, controls and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's just kind of a fascinating field there. And then the other part I'm looking at right now is uh, biomedical image processing of histopathology images. So these are kind of like stained cell images. Uh, and we're looking at uh, a variety of applications. One of them is um, just, fascinates me, which is to look at um, the tissue of placentas uh, after after birth. So the, the mother would birth the baby and then uh, they would birth the placenta. And then you can take this uh, placenta, this organ, and then look at uh, histology slides from it. And there are certain types of lesions that are related to life ki lifetime cardiovascular risk in the mother. And so this is really fascinating in that you can look at the placenta mm -hmm. And it's a good predictor of cardiovascular risk in the mother. And so, um, yeah, you can do a lot of preventative kind of measures there for uh, for the mom at that point in time. Basically, well, early really intervention, right? Yeah, a lot of early intervention. I mean, as as you as you might know, um, cardiovascular diseases is uh, one of the leading causes of, of death, or might be the leading cause of death. And so you know, having these kind of early preventative measures is, is kind of really important and could be really impactful. And so it's just, yeah, to me, it's just like a really neat, I mean, I'm the engineering part of it. So I'm doing like the <laughs> processing side of things. My collaborators are, are, are really um, pushing the, the, um, this kind of approach. And so it's just, it's just fascinating working across fields like this. Yeah. 
Um, one thing you you mentioned, um, you're working on the engineering side of it. And one thing you mentioned about being a research professor, like the bad thing, I suppose, is when you have students working under you, once they graduate, they're gone and you have to like get a new role of students. <laughs> so, um, what kind of students do you look for? Are they are you always restricted to just biomedical engineering or are you open to students in other fields as well? No, yeah, no, my, my students are come from a variety of disciplines, I guess. Um, you know, really, I think that's it's really helpful to have students from a variety of backgrounds. They bring in different types of perspectives um, into into research and, and into life in general. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, there is a diversity of like, this experience. So some of my graduate students uh, don't even have an engineering background, even though they're kind of doing an engineering uh, graduate degree. Um, and so I'm, what I'm looking for is like students who are engaged and willing to learn and um, are excited about things, right? Um, and yeah. I've been really blessed. I've, I've had fantastic um, students who worked in my lab are working in my lab. But as you said, the, the unfortunate part is <laughs> eventually graduate and move on to things. And you're like, oh, I, I really like working with them. But um, despite that, you know, some I always get some new students, and, and I've been really fortunate that that um, my, my lab's always been populated by really outstanding students. Awesome. Speaking of diversity, um, I remember we were talking last week, and you you started your undergrad quite early, and I would I what was the difference in diversity? In, during your undergrad versus now as a professor, how has it evolved? Yeah, I mean, so I did my undergrad from 92 to 97. Uh, and I, my program was computer engineering. And so that was probably one of the uh, lowest um, in terms of uh, gender ratio for females and versus males, I guess. Um, I think we were around, I'm going to say 10% uh, females in my, in my class. Um, and then after finishing my undergrad in computer engineering, I moved more into the biomedical engineering side of things. And um, that, that was much better. Uh, I, I think the biomedical field uh, seems to have, inherently have a better gender ratio. And, um, and so, you know, I don't necessarily think that's an, an evolution <laughs> of the program, more than I just kind of switched to a program that has, uh, has more females. Um, but then you look at, you know, a program and, and kind of its statistics across time. Um, so if you take an electrical engineering degree over the past, you know, a couple of decades, you know, you kind of see certain little waves and stuff like that. But I don't think there's been really uh, a large meaningful shift in terms of that. Uh, it's still quite, um, quite low. Um, and you, yeah. you also see other indicators, even at the faculty level, right? So not just at the student level, but at the faculty level of how many female faculty and instructors that we have, right? Um, and again, I think, you know, are things potentially improving? Yeah, but have they been meaningfully improved, <laughs> right? right? You know, Engineers Canada has that 30 by 30, right? And, you know, the fact that we're striving for 30% when, you know, the ratio of males and females is 50%, you know, that's our goal, right? And that's a stretch goal in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, suggests to me that you know we still got uh, quite a ways to go in your perspective has the culture or like the philosophy changed though because i i feel like now there is active action being taken did you see that when you were in your undergrad or during your graduate yeah no i think that has been the, the biggest shift i think uh i don't know if 
there was ever, at least I, I haven't experienced it, where there was like an explicit, like um, people were, were intending to be sexist or misogynistic, right? And certainly there are people right. who are, are sexist and misogynistic, but there wasn't like, if you ask someone like, do you believe in like equity, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't think there would be anyone who would be like, no, 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 I, I think that's, that's just awful, right? Um, so I don't think that necessarily has changed. What has changed is this, the seriousness by which we need to address that problem. And as you're saying, the, the need to actually uh, participate in it. And so I think in the past, you know, if you think about gender equity, it was thought to be uh, a woman's issue, right? And then mm -hmm. today, I think we see it as a human issue. And so that I think has, has really changed in, in the participation of, of, of who's fighting for um, equity and diversity and inclusion uh, is more encompassing, I think. Yeah, and it's also not just restricted to gender now, it's more yeah. age, religion, race, everything. I'm trying to be yeah, equitable sure. across every, yeah, every category that we can think yeah. of. Yeah, I think in engineering, um, I mean, the most obvious one, because it's been the most um the most focused one over over the number of years has always been the the, the gender one uh because mm -hmm. it's, it's the one that people have been paying the most attention to over the past uh, number of decades it still remains <laughs> problematic but you're right i mean there is a focus now on 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 race uh, on ability um and so there it, it has diversified as well with that as well so is there anything I'm thinking of this question now. Is there anything that you've sort of done in your classes or with your students that are in your lab that you think has has really worked in making sure that it is an environment where women feel like they can sort of speak up and be included in the conversations going on? Yeah, I mean, so this is kind of just constantly evolving over the years. And I think that's the, the, the first point I make would make is that this isn't like a yeah, I've succeeded or I haven't succeeded in this. It's kind of a continual kind of commitment to this. And so um, I'll point to a few things that I've done, which I think have been helpful, um, but not to say that this is the, the, the be all and end all kind of stuff. There's, there's always more to do kind of things. The other thing I would say too is um, many of these ideas, uh, they're not my ideas. I've been um, fortunate to work with um, and encounter people who have, uh, are, are are very helpful in, in suggesting ways of, of creating a more inclusive in, uh, environment. And so uh, I'll point to two things. So uh, the first one uh, comes from Audrey Girard from the School of Information Technology. And she shared with me um, this, this accommodation idea that, you know, in, in the course that line, you have accommodations for, um, for disability, uh, sickness, uh, uh, things like that, right? And uh, she shared with me this accommodation for um, for students with um, with children, right? And so, if you have children, if if they get if they get sick or ill or there's some issue in the school and things like that, um, this can really disrupt their engagement uh, with their academics, right? And so, um, you know, and there's nothing that's kind of present. Uh, there's a pregnancy one, but not one for in terms of childcare, right? And so I included that into my course outline um, just this past uh, winter. And I thought, you know, that's an easy thing for me to do is just to acknowledge that, that the student population has diversity uh, in terms of in terms of that as well. And I, I thought, yeah, it's an easy thing I can do. I wasn't too sure if it was actually going to be impactful. 
but that term, uh, there was a student that was that just thanked me. It was like, you know, throughout my entire academic um, career, I, I, I felt that I wasn't being seen. And so I actually ended up having a student who has a child in my class. And um, she was just, you know, we were meeting one-on-one. She was just telling me how thankful she was to see that and that it was impactful to, to her to see that. And um, yeah, it, 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 it didn't strike me until it, to hearing that from the student it's, uh, herself, just to, to know that um, what seems like simple actions are, are very meaningful, right? Yeah, um, for sure. The other the other one would be from uh, Rowan Thompson, who's a professor in uh, physics. So I attended uh, a lecture that she gave on uh, women in physics um, and her journey, I guess. And she had this statement that uh, we all think that um, equity and diversity and inclusion are important, but um, we don't seem to talk about it in our classes because uh, we think, oh, our classes are just filled with so much content. We can barely cover the, the content that's, that we need to, you know, there's no space for it. And she just made this remark going, if it's that important, right, then why aren't we making space into it, right? And so um, when I thought about that and I thought about, you know, the fact that my course had group projects and, and things like that, the importance of addressing this uh, explicitly, I thought, was really important. Because um, we you think about kind of stereotypical gender roles that we have when we do group projects, right? And I even see it um, with my colleagues, right? you know where you're doing group discussions and they're like all right have your discussion uh take some notes and one person will present back to the group right and when i'm in in these type of things and sitting at a table when it's when someone's like all right take notes everyone just turns to if there's a female at the table, we'll just turn to the female assuming that they will do the, the note taking right um and so we have these kind of unconscious gendered roles that we that we that we that, just, that happen right and yep. I was thinking about that in my own course when we think about group projects, right? And I can imagine, and I believe it's true, that we have these kind of gendered roles as well, where it's like, oh, you know, this is a technical thing, and, the, you know, the males will take care of it, you know, oh, we have to do some of the organization in terms of the meeting, you know, we'll get the female to do that. And so uh, I really wanted to kind of make that explicit uh, to the students just to understand that we may have these unconscious biases, and that may cause um, group projects and our roles in those projects to really form in, in, in these ways that we don't necessarily intend to, right? And to, we should instead have these kind of conversations more explicitly and, and address these unconscious biases. Um, and hopefully that was helpful. I, I don't know if it was completely helpful, but you know, it was a, it was a good first try and, and, I, and I want to commit to continue doing things like that. I think that's awesome, to be honest. My whole time in university, I've never seen a prof do that. And you're right about the conversation within the classroom. It's really null. And that kind of bothers me. But um, I think they are changing it in the classroom as well. Because I remember you mentioned that within the faculty, they're trying to involve the student body into the conversation and trying to train the faculty to recognize their biases or implement some initiatives to raise EDI awareness? Yeah, I would say that um, I think we are recognizing the importance of the student voice and, and the activities that we that we engage in. Um, and it's always been kind of weird. Like, there's always been this kind of reticence to uh, engage students because students are busy, right? They're got a lot on their plates already uh they're you know a lot of stress and stuff like that and so asking them to participate in more things um 
sometimes felt not, not, not right. Um, but, you know, I, I find um, through the different committees that I've been involved with, like hiring committees and, and um, you know, pedagogical committees and stuff like that, getting that student voice uh, has been really insightful. And uh, students uh, have been really eager to participate, right? They, they, I think they, they know that they have meaningful contributions to give. And yeah, and so th this idea of like, oh, paternalistically, we should just not ask them. I think we're, we're overcoming that and, and, and allowing for that uh, participation more and more. Awesome. So talking about the faculty and the community, do you see any um, dialogue, ongoing dialogue happening regarding mental health? specifically within the Faculty of Engineering and Design? Mm -hmm. I think um, I think the, the conversations with regards to, to mental health and, and wellness uh, has drastically changed over the past few years. Um, I think when we can point to our current president, uh, Benoit Antoine Macron, uh, who has shared his story and struggles uh, with mental health and wellness, uh, and that has really helped in terms of destigmatizing, um, you know, and, and allowing for these conversations to happen uh, more and more. I look to other champions like uh, uh, Ken Hellemans from the Department of Neuroscience, who's been a tremendous champion in, in, in looking at these kind of initiatives and bringing them to the forefront. And that's, that's just been very, very, very helpful, I find. And the university has responded quite well, I think. You know, we have the student mental health framework. We're doing the same thing on the um, staff and faculty side of things. Uh, I'm fortunate to be one of the co-chairs of uh, Healthy Workplace, which looks at kind of like the physical and mental, uh, social and professional well-being of faculty and staff. And um, especially during these times, you know, in the pandemic, it's like it, it is uh, a much more stressful time for the students, faculty and staff. And without that type of um, explicit attention um, put towards it, um, a lot of bad things can happen. So I'm glad that we're I mean, things aren't perfect, of course, but I'm glad that we've been engaged with that um, pre pandemic and continuing uh, with that now. Well, Maya's favorite questions coming up. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, yeah, in the conversation about mental health, I think that me and Freen have talked before about how important it is to get involved with other things outside of work or school and in the community. Is there any sort of hobby or extracurricular thing that you, you always turn to that you really enjoy doing? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, there's always this kind of uh, tendency that we just get consumed with our work. And I mean, admittedly, I, I, I'm kind of guilty of <laughs> myself as well. Um, I would say as an undergrad student, I was just consumed with this like um, just work, right? And it wasn't really until my final year where I just kind of just woke up a bit. and was like, what am I doing? Like, it's not just about uh, courses. It's not just about grades. There's like more uh, that, that I think that's out there and more I can contribute in a meaningful kind of way. And uh, and so since since that time, I've been really kind of engaged more in kind of community activities um, at the university. You know, it's working with uh, students and student groups. Um, you know, again, I co-chair I co things like Healthy Workplace, um, which I think is like really, really important, kind of important initiatives. I get uh, the opportunity to work with uh, on EDI initiatives. Um, 
you know, with people like uh, Cynthia Cruikshank from the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace. And uh, just, you know, I find this, this type, these types of activities are just kind of really engaging. I get to meet different people from across the campus and yeah. kind of see where, you know, you're putting time and effort into these things and seeing kind of the impact that it's kind of, that it's making, right? You know, I love my research and, and stuff like that. And, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm proud of, of the output that we, that we do. But at the same time, I always kind of, kind of think, you know, what, what, what does my, you know, this journal uh, manuscript that I publish, <laughs> what's the impact of that? And I know it does have an impact, but it's, it's less direct, I guess, and, and tangible sometimes. Whereas this is like really interfacing with the community. And I see that impact kind of a bit more directly and then on a personal note, um, I, I, I have a, um, a wonderful family. I've got four young kids, and that uh, that consumes a lot of my my uh, my day in a very positive kind of way. And so, uh, remembering to to provide that uh, myself that time and space to enjoy that and really kind of just live in in those moments, I think are really important. And then uh, I do take some time for myself. Uh, I, I, I do a lot of running. Uh, which is just kind of nice to get outdoors, to have just time for myself, just to think, reflect, or even not think. You know, <laughs> I think it's just kind of good to have that time to to to, to do nothing and be idle. Um. So I think you already covered this, but I neglected to ask it earlier. What really got you into like the conversation of being an ally and um, contributing in that factor? Um. And that's a good question. I mean. I, when I look back in my life, I, I've, I have a, a very fortunate and privileged life. You know, I come from a very uh, wonderful family. My parents are, are fabulous. I have really uh, wonderful siblings. I've uh, got good stability, you know, financially, emotionally, you know, lots of supports and stuff like that. And so um, I didn't really appreciate how much I got, but I know now that you know it allowed me to thrive. You know, I was able to to really spend a lot of time in my studies and my work, um, and I, I've um, been able to uh, have quite a lot of success because I was able to put that time and effort into it. Right, and then uh, you know, over time, we start understanding that not everyone uh, has has that that type of privilege, right, to have that type of support and stability in their lives, and um, as I. The university environment's really kind of uh, wonderful in that it exposes you to a more diverse um, community, I guess, and just more interactions across that, both in terms of, of race and culture and ability. Um, and so uh, as that's kind of happened where I've gotten more exposure to, to, to different communities, um, you know, I, I, I get a better understanding uh, empathy, compassion for uh, what's kind of going on in other communities, and the burden uh, of fighting for more, you know, equity and inclusion is isn't um, evenly felt, right? And so it's why is it always upon women to fight for gender equity or for people with disabilities to uh, fight against ableism and things like that? And so I think adding my voice uh, to work with people. Uh, to fight for these things, I think has been um, something I'm committed to because, you know, I, 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 again, I've been able to thrive and enjoy life because of it. And I want everyone to, to have that, yeah, to everyone to, to, to be able to have, to thrive and reach their fullest potential. Yeah. And I, I, again, I've just been fortunate in terms of who I get to interact with, you know, really great <laughs> people uh, across this campus. It's an awesome perspective to have. 
you've been you have a lot of experience within academia the industry as well as the community is there any advice you have for people coming after you i guess what i would say is be engaged um don't don't underestimate how you can contribute i guess to things um i look back and sometimes like things where i didn't think were really strong actions and stuff like that uh, ended up being really meaningful for people, right? And so, you know, it could just be like a, a meeting that I had with a student or uh, something I said to someone, or, you know, I, I pointed to that um, childcare accommodation, right? And so sometimes we underestimate how these small actions can really have strong and important impacts to other people. And so be engaged uh, is one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is, you know, there needs to be some type of, I guess, patience involved with this as well. And that, you know, we're almost impatient to see like, you know, outcomes and impact, right? We expect things to kind of happen immediately. And I think life doesn't really have too many shortcuts. You know? um, yeah. We have to get through um, the hard times to, 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 to get to the end, I guess. Uh, and so it can sometimes be a struggle, uh, but not to, to give up, um, to give up hope and that commitment towards that. Uh, I think you surround yourself uh, with um, a strong, resilient community. That really helps, right? I think if I was trying to do these things by myself, uh, I would just not be able to persist. Um, but working with, you know, these these individuals across campus, um, you know, just constantly reinforces my commitment, right? And you just can't help but continue to be engaged in, in, in these kind of things. Uh, and so I've been blessed with that. So that's the other thing is just surround yourself with with a, with a really um, strong and supportive community. Awesome life advice. So yeah, thank you, Maya. Do you have that's anything awesome. else? I think that's all the questions that we have today. But thank you very very much for speaking with us. Where can we find you? Do you want to plug in sure. your social? <laughs> yeah, you can find me at uh, on Twitter at Adrian DC Chan. I'm also, I do have an Instagram account as well, but uh, I, what? I, didn't, I never knew about this. I've never posted on it. <laughs> so I think I created it, uh, let's see the January, February, and I still haven't uh, figured out how to use it yet. So uh, now it's so much time has passed. I'm like, I got to make sure that my first post is going to be good. <laughs> so like maybe you all me enough. <laughs> yeah, like people can follow me on Instagram, and, and when I drop my first post, it's going to be spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> what are the What are the handles though? Uh, well, so yeah, Twitter is Adrian DC Chan. I don't even know what my Instagram is. <laughs> Let me find out. That's okay. That's okay. We'll find it eventually. Yeah, it's the same. Adrian DC Chan. Look at me. <laughs> consistent i for i totally forgot by the way at the beginning i should let you introduce yourself so i apologize for that but thank you so much for coming um, oh thank you so much That's donating been... your time but yeah i think we're gonna end it right there okay right. thank you so that much fun. Everybody. <laughs> bye